0: Well, I have a promise to make you tonight. This is the last of our historical survey. And uh, we're going to wind some things up tonight. And what we're going to do as we move ahead into uh, to the remainder of August is we are going to just talk a lo- little bit about the, I'll get this out of the way, at least on my screen. We want to talk a little bit about um, some of the, the crises that we're facing, uh, ecologically, economically, and with equality, as we wrap up this study, one of the things I hope uh, that we have done is help put some pieces together uh, as to why certain people have the mentalities that they do, and I think that'll become pretty apparent tonight. So as we forge ahead, uh, we were off. We were talking about how. Evangelicalism emerged, but today I want to take this um, this foundation, and I want to come back to this um, this definition for a moment. I'm going to minimize that just for a second. Christian nationalism is the belief that the kingdom of Christ can be advanced by the dominance of a particular political party or nation state, claiming to be the political and national embodiment of the will of Christ in opposition to all other political and national rivals. So Christian nationalism uh, often uh, thinks of itself in terms of we have it right. And because we have it right, uh, then we uh, insist that everybody look at uh, these issues the same way. So as we come to tonight, here's what I wanna do. The the last column that I've been using in this chart Uh, is talking a little bit about the new millennium, uh, specifically since 9-11. And we're going to look at some personalities uh, from George Bush all the way down to Donald Trump tonight. But I want to preface it by these three points of how the base of militant masculinity and evangelicalism merging uh, found a new enemy. And uh, it seems as though that the way this approach to Christianity uh, finds its energy is always to be uh, in opposition to someone. And in this case, since 9-11, that primarily became Muslims. Um, And so the call continues to go out for heroes that will stand up uh, against terrorism. And that's a good thing. But the... Uh, prejudice and hatred of uh, Muslim people as a whole is not a good thing and we'll see how this develops tonight Um, and it will start off with George Bush but it's also empowered by Christianity with two individuals you may have heard of you might not have heard of Mark Driscoll and Ted Haggard and then also the coming uh, to the presidency of Barack Obama and the pushback against his leadership by Franklin Graham and Donald Trump. And that will lead to what has been in the news now for a year and a half, and that it was the attack on the Capitol you know, on January 6, 2001. So that's where we're going tonight. Let's see if we can flesh it out a little bit. What's that? 21, yeah, 2021, mistake there. Thank you, my accountant wife. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So um, here's what I want to do I want to introduce it uh, by talking about the rise of Christian nationalism being energized by 9 11. So we have seen the growth of Christian nationalism over the last few weeks. But here's the base of it, I think. And that is Christian nationalism is the idea that America itself, is defined by Christianity. If if we know our uh, our history well, we will know that even though there were people that came to America seeking religious freedom and they happened to be Christians, there's a wide range of different influences, including many of our founders who were not uh, Christians by the definition of being followers of Christ. They were individuals that believed in God, but a form of Belief that is called deism. That is, God created the world but kind of left it to run on its own. So, what we find is even at the beginning of our history uh, is not one Christian mindset. You'll find that um, the actions of our early um, history making founders is that they approved many things and also uh, was unjust to uh, individuals like native americans and uh, black slaves specifically so yet this seems to be something that we continue to um, try to push uh, and saying america is a christian nation if we use the sermon on the mount or the teachings of jesus The answer to that would be we were never a Christian nation in terms of being a nation of followers of Christ. It seems to me a better way to talk about being a Christian nation is that Christianity is our dominant civil religion. And there's a big difference between that uh, and being actually followers of Christ who are trying to implement his teachings. So, this idea, though, is often used as a way of Uh, coercing those that are not believers, whether they're atheists, agnostics, or other uh, uh, followers of other world religions. And yet that's at the basis of our country is that there is freedom of religion. uh, And there's somehow an ability to get along and be unified simply because uh, we have embarked upon this experiment called democracy. And, um, uh, I mentioned last week, or maybe it was the week before, about um, the podcast that I listened to uh, called um, Reflections of History, and boy, he touches upon a lot of those things uh, in, in his daily updates and so forth, so I, I encourage you to look that up. Again, it's only a five-minute uh, podcast each day. And it will give you a lot of history and a lot of roots uh, back to the beginning of our country, uh, the forming of America, the concepts that it tried to hold on to and through the thick and thin of uh, those that have tried to change it. So um, what I do want to do now is talk a little bit about um, how it picked up steam. So this idea of Christian nationalism, that uh, if we could get everybody to be Christians and if we can force this one type of lifestyle upon everyone, uh, then our world would be better. But I hope we are beginning to see that that's really not the goal. The goal is to keep uh, straight white American males primarily in charge and in power. And I hope that message has been coming through. So. This picked up steam since the 50s, as we've talked about different personalities, but it really began to take hold of the nation right around the time of Ronald Reagan's presidency. And um, proponents of this ideology believe that the federal government should declare the United States as a Christian nation. Now, there are implications to that as well. And when Donald Trump was president, you remember the moving of um of the um uh, well on oh, slipping my, on my mind, the um they moved the uh, in Israel, the capital to, to Jerusalem. What was this? The embassy to Jerusalem. And um that be that was primarily because Christians have this love affair with Israel, and we're kind of like the new Israel. Um And why should it concern us whether the embassy is in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or any other place? But they push for that primarily because of theological uh, beliefs that's closely tied to this idea that the United States is a Christian nation and a cousin of Judaism. So the God of Christian nationalists um, is not, reflective too much of the human Jesus and the teachings that he brought while he was on earth. But all of these things here, the idea of being a gun-toting, gas-guzzling, straight, white, native-born kind of uh, uh, American, is often attached to Jesus. And it's quite interesting the way it's reflected in art. So uh, most Christian art portrays Jesus as some type of European, Rather than Middle Eastern, uh, light-skinned, uh, fair, long hair, beard, those type of things, and all of this kind of comes out uh, in a variety of different ways. So, having introduced that, we do want to talk a little bit about George W. Bush and how he starts off um, with a good goal. He wanted to be a compassionate conservative. So here's George Bush. And um, as you can see, he uh, was born in July of 1946. He is still living, obviously. Um, He is an individual that was a part of a political family. His dad was president, obviously. But he was also in politics as the governor of Texas from 1995 to 2000, before he served an eight-year term as president. Um, He had other interests as well. He was a co-owner of the Texas Rangers baseball team. So he had a variety of interests. He was a New Englander, interestingly enough, that moved to Texas, bought the Crawford Ranch, I think it's called, and uh, portrayed himself as kind of that cowboy image. Um, He was an individual um, whose election was contested. You can remember all the hanging Chad conversations and that type of thing. Uh, eventually he gets in. And uh, what happens not too long after he is in his first year of his presidency, um, the World Trade Center is attacked. And when it was attacked, it was kind of like a snowball that started a lot of uh, consequences and reaction. Uh, And you can see on screen there that uh, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security was uh, developed. And more so than that, what, what's interesting is his idea of being a compassionate conservative kind of went out the window because of the events that happened under his watch. And he became more of a crusader. And in fact, he, he used that term uh, a couple of times before those that uh, heard it corrected him because it brought up a lot of bad imagery of the Crusades uh, and so forth. So what's most important is to see down in this middle section here is that he ordered the invasion of Afghanistan, began the war in Afghanistan with the goal of overthrowing the Taliban, destroying al-Qaeda and capturing Osama bin Laden. He at one time claimed mission accomplished when he was on an aircraft carrier, and it was long from accomplished. Um, We know that now that it would take years and years and years, and actually it wasn't under his presidency that Osama bin Laden was killed. But what we find is as a result of uh, his approach and those around him, Cheney, Rumsfeld, those type of individuals uh, that never turned down uh, a convenient war because of defense contracting and all kinds of different things. What we find though, is it started to impose things like the Patriot Act surveillance upon people. And I understand that's all a part of intelligence. However, what really happened was a lot of lies, the, the reasoning why we went into the war, um, weapons of mass destruction that were never found, and that type of thing. But the evangelical world were the bigger, uh, biggest backers of the war uh, because of this militant type of approach to Christianity. Uh, Christians are the biggest backers of Israel and um they were um uh the our country's capital washington dc planned this war against iraq and uh it was the christian base that was most in favor of it even though there would be those saying we're reacting too quickly on this we got to do our homework and we got to figure out what we're, we're getting into? Are we getting into a situation we can't get ourselves out of? But when you see an image like this, um, it, it really generates a lot of uh, passion. And uh, these type of images that came across our news wires and uh, the many bodies that were found, uh, the consequence of being exposed to a lot of the contaminants um, that were making police and firemen uh, sick and coming down with cancer and other things later, uh, we understand. I understand why there's that strong pushback. However, I want you to see that this is a key component that was uh, prepared for years in advance uh, because of the mentality of evangelicalism. So George Bush played a pretty critical role in that. And um, it's interesting then at the end of his term, uh, when Obama runs for presidency, it's the Christians that that have the biggest pushback against Obama. But before we get to Obama, I want to talk just for a moment about militant Christianity and how it really gained a foothold. Yes, 9-11 played its part, um, but there were pastors and one in particular by the name of Mark Driscoll uh, that talked about the wussification of America and that we become soft and weak. And it's interesting that the Christian homeschool movement kind of reinforced this uh, as well, that there was a lot of patriotism uh, and and so forth that was connected to Christianity, especially in the home school movement. But this individual, Mark Driscoll, uh, is an individual that emerged during this time, uh, and he became kind of the um, the leader of this mindset that we become too soft uh, and. He took this very aggressive approach to masculinity. And you can see here uh, that he started a church called Seattle's Mars Hills Church in 1996. And over 18 years, um, his empire grew to 15 churches um, in five different states. And it really became Uh, A movement in and of itself. Uh, There was uh, an organization he started called Acts 29 uh, that basically was trying to uh, teach the same way that he taught and all these individuals that were doing church planting were to follow his model. It came out in year 2000 that one of the inspirations of of his approach to church planting uh, was Um, the film Braveheart uh, with Mel Gibson and he and his social media took on a pseudonym uh, William Wallace II and he would use it to project unfiltered views uh, that wouldn't have any effect upon his church but he had a very aggressive misogynistic type of masculinity and that seemed to have conditioned a lot of the younger uh, evangelicals of his day. So here's what he looks like. Um, Mark Driscoll, born October, uh, 1970. Um, There is an interesting development. So he grew this empire, and then all kinds of things became uh, apparent that he was an abusive type of pastor. And uh, many of his staff members and so forth um, began to uh, come out and talk about some of the things that he did. Now, what I want to do is show you, and I'll just play for you two minutes, of a podcast that um, is interesting. Well, did I lose it? Hold on. Okay. Giving me all kinds of assholes, I might not be able to do it. I was going to play, um, anyways. There's this uh, podcast called "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill," and it's an interesting um, it's an interesting podcast that was put out by Christianity Today. And in it, it details a lot of the abuse that went on under his leadership. And um, bring this back up. There we go. And what happened was this empire that he built um, and his teachings on gender role, uh, there was some things that came out about plagiarism, but mostly the culture of fear that he did, and a lot of the abuse that he uh, projected upon his uh, staff members, that the whole thing in 2014 fell apart. Every, uh, the whole thing closed, Mars Hill closed down, and all the individual congregations that were started by him were left on their own to decide whether they were going to continue or not. Within three months of his uh, resignation, uh, after a lot of these things came out, um, what what became apparent is that the rise and fall of Mars Hill had a history of a lot of misconduct built upon this aggressive uh, masculinity, militant um, uh, approach to Christianity. And uh, as of 2021, he is still the subject of that. This was a podcast that was last year that came out by Christianity Today. Within three months of him uh, leaving Mars Hill after the whole thing collapsed, he started another church plant in Scottsdale, Arizona, And, uh, and he has not changed his leadership position at all. I don't think he's gained the notoriety nor the momentum that he had at uh, mars hill but the point is he was very influential around the time of 9-11 and if you uh if you do listen to that podcast series you'll find a lot of the things that he is saying uh are not respectful of women in particular and uh they are seen as objects and you know that type of thing uh to um Carry out the wishes of men. So, I'm just curious: have any of you ever heard of Marjorie School before? No. So, I mean, within leadership of Christianity, specifically pastor circles and stuff, it was a it was a pretty hot topic for uh, a while. But here's my point: all of this is kind of leading to um the new hub of christianity at one time it was wheaton illinois because of wheaton college but during this period of time there were a lot of christian organizations that moved out to colorado springs one of them being focused on the family and it was there that colorado springs uh became the the um Epicenter of of Christianity, publishing companies, and other things, and what one of the things that's real strong in Colorado Springs is the military, in particular the Air Force. And I know there's the Air Force Chapel out in Colorado, Colorado Springs. In fact, uh, Bud, you were out there, didn't you? Didn't you visit out there with your grandson? Yeah, yeah,
1: the Air Force Academy.
0: Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I looked online and it's kind of that chapel is looks like a series of planes that are kind of standing on end. It's kind mm-hmm. of interesting.
1: Really yeah. interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's what's interesting is there's this kind of intentional move of evangelicalism uh, to a, a part of the country that brought them within close proximity of the military. Now the military's a uh, much needed thing for our country but it's interesting that evangelicalism started to position itself not in chicago or new york or philadelphia or boston but colorado springs and um what what's interesting is it's kind of like the nerve center where if you're going to kind of continue to project a militant type approach to christianity well what's a better place than where there's a strong presence of the military that has that type of, uh, of organization and, um, you know, ranking and and following orders and all that type of thing. Well, the city itself housed three Air Force bases, the Air Force Academy and an Army fort as well. So one of the interesting things that I, at the time when Jim Dobson was on the radio, and I don't know if his program is still on the radio or not, but um, he had that daily broadcast, and he up and moved his uh, headquarters to Colorado Springs. All of a sudden, I couldn't figure out why when it happened. And in the months that followed, it was interesting that Focus on the Family Um, wanted to position itself in a place where the nerve center for all of Christianity could be influenced by their approach. And a year after he arrived in Colorado is when he began to mobilize support for an amendment that would block the passage of gay rights. So it was kind of a part of a political move. It just wasn't a, a business move that he moved to Colorado Springs. Um, it is there that his influence politically uh, brought pressure upon over a hundred parachurch organizations as well. And they all seem to kind of fall in line. And um, what we find is that he is an individual along with Billy Graham that was much more politically connected than what we initially understood. Billy Graham, it seemed at the time because of his his, uh, nature. And uh, he won the audience of many different presidents of the United States. But if you read that book, Jesus and John Wayne, you'll see that behind the scenes, Billy Graham uh, was doing a lot of political maneuvering as well. So something to keep in the back of our mind, because who doesn't love Billy Graham? He preaches a good message, um, honors Christ, but kind of behind the scenes, there's more to the agenda than simply the Crusades, which is an interesting title in and of itself. Now that I look back on it, Uh, you know, Billy Graham didn't hold uh, rallies or uh, conventions. It was a crusade. You know, uh, so, anyways, a lot of these things don't fall into place until later, and you kind of go, oh, maybe there was more to it than what I realized. So, any thoughts there before we continue on? Somewhat. Yeah, there were a lot. Um, As you can see on the screen here, there were over 100 parachurch organizations. And a part of that is mission organizations as well, foreign missions, uh, home missions, that type of thing. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is the mentality. Um, So Mark asked, why did they want to be so military like? A lot of that has to do with power. And it has to do, well, where there's power, there's money too. So it has to do with money too. But um, you know, this regimented way of looking at things seems as though it, it's strong on the outside. These are strong leaders that we can depend upon. But you can also see how things are manipulated. So Steve Bannon was just convicted of a couple of different things. And he uses language like I'm gonna go medieval on people and stuff. So it's, it has a lot of fear factor to it as well. And people can be intimidated by that. So, um, you know, that's my, my best ex- explanation at, at this point. But any thoughts? Okay. So
1: if you, if, if you were to ask, uh... Some of the organizations, why they moved out there,
0: what would they say? In they,
1: other would words, say do
0: they? they would say economics, okay. that there was there was economical advantages to doing that. Um, and I, I remember Jim Thompson, and I don't know if it had to do with with taxes, lower taxes, or if it had something else to do with it, you know, but a lot of it had to do with financial at least that was the explanation. It had to do with, you know, the financial stability of the organization. But they're all nonprofits, so they wouldn't pay paying any taxes anyway, right? It was I don't language. know. I mean, I don't know if they would all qualify on that or not.
1: I mean, I'd have to ask the accountants. <laughs> I don't know. Because uh, the, Navig- the Navigators moved out there, too.
0: Right. Yep. Yeah, there's a whole host of different organizations, if you look it up, that moved out there, right? some, some very solid organizations, uh, that had some great ministry, whether it's on campus or uh, elsewhere. Um, and not that they lost that when they went out there, but it was almost like, um, you know, it was almost like a, a journey to Mecca or something, you know, we, these groups are out there. We all got to be out there Type of thing, and like I said, at one time Wheaton, Illinois, was that for the center of evangelicalism, and then all of a sudden it it started to change, and they go out to Colorado Springs, and out there there is a church called New Life Church. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but this the pastor of New uh, New Life Church. He's a guy by the name of Ted Haggard. Here he is. Okay, uh, born in uh, uh, nineteen fifty six in June, he is an individual uh, that he and uh, Jim Dobson made no bones about the fact that they were explicitly political and that we're gonna we're gonna turn this country into a Christian nation. So he finds he founds this church in nineteen eighty four. And he then becomes president of the National Association of Evangelicals. We talked about that several weeks back, the establishment of uh, the NAE back in the 50s. Um, He oversaw his own association of about 300 churches across the country as well. But like the military, he had this rigid chain of command. So just like Mark Driscoll, very authoritarian, He as well has this strict chain of command. And here are the things that are interesting to observe. Male authority and female submission were essential to that hierarchical order. So again, God, men, women, okay? Uh, It's kind of that, you know, it's not God and men and women, it's God, man, then women. And um, so Haggard and Dobson, they began working closely together and they became very popular and they as they continued to make inroads into the politics of our country then all of a sudden in 2006 national headlines he and he was very anti anti very anti lgbt it came out in the headlines that he had been hiring a male prostitute to have sex with this man, uh, even while at the same time he was advocating for uh, legislation against same-sex marriage. Um, And he had paid this guy over three years. And then it it, it, it was also found out that he was using crystal meth at the same time. So he was using drugs. He He was in this sexual scandal and he resigned from his post, okay? Uh, If you want to read it online, his wife sticks by him and he goes through a period of restoration. What do you think he did next? He started a new church. He started a new church. That's exactly right. So what we find here is um, these individuals, Dobson, Ted Haggard, Mark Driscoll, very influential during this period of time. You have other you have other major, um, you know, uh, figures as well in Christianity. But it seems as though these individuals kind of played into the moment that we're we were in as a country. Thoughts? Any comments? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah very authoritarian right yeah 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 there's kind of a cultic feel to it yeah you're right
1: you know is, yeah. I mean these some of the folks come i
0: mean they, they look
1: authoritarian yeah and, and and they speak they speak the same way dobson my, dobson was more folks the wrong word but i i i he was Bruce Stevenson. <laughs> I always felt he was more low-keyed, a little more, you no, know, not not as not as st- strong and boisterous and mild yeah, man. Yeah, a little more mild manner, which I think made him how do you raise children and deal yeah, with that? I, yeah, I he think came off, he, he always came up as kind of a kind hearted. Who knows what's the right thing to do with you know kind of parent kind of thing? I yeah. Oh, he told you what to do. Yeah. Would you say, Shelly I said, oh no, he
2: told you what to oh, do. Well, he told you what to
1: do, but he didn't come off as the way these other guys come off in some sense. No,
0: he had more of a mild manner to him. Uh, mm-hmm. He he didn't he didn't raise his voice like some of the other leaders and get all agitated and stuff like that. So I think people could trust him more or felt like yeah could, right uh and and he was a child psychologist that's how he started out i mean he didn't you know he um so you know what he was saying seemed to be trustworthy because of his background and his education and all that type of thing and and he did have good insight on some things what what we didn't know at the time is how political he was involved and 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 that was kind of behind the scenes. Um, and yet, as we look back, we can kind of see how he positioned himself uh, uh, to be close to the circles of power. And, um, and then when he finally came out and began to really be uh, in strongest support of a strong hierarchical structure in the family, men, then their wives, then the kids. And then the pushback against um, the LGBT community was really strong as well. So um, he began using language like our country is in peril or, uh, you know, it's almost as if our country is going to fall unless we somehow win the culture war. And but so I think he became more, how do I want to put it? Um, I think he became, I don't want to say aggressive, but I think it became more apparent later in his ministry than earlier in his ministry that um, his agenda was far beyond the family circle itself. Uh, It was the culture at large as well.
2: When did he start talking like that? Because I don't I remember listening to him when my old three were little, mm-hmm. but not so much. Maybe a little bit when John was little, he was born in 87. Yeah. Um, but I don't, when did he, I think I probably stopped listening to him when he moved to his base of operation,
1: mm-hmm. because
2: I, I remember hearing that he moved, but after that, You
0: know, I I don't know if my kids aged out of it by then. Yeah, Um, I would say, and I can't prove this, but I would say that right around 9-11, a lot of these ministries began to find um, the, how do I want to put it, the permission to be aggressive, because that's the only way we're going to win, not only against terrorism, but against the culture as well. Uh,
2: I I was yeah I was
0: way done with him by then right so 9-11 sparked a lot of different things it really did and um and it had its effect upon Christianity as a whole and in fact that's going to be the next slide that I'm going to show you but I don't want to go there if you have some other thoughts or comments So now here's what's interesting. Um, all of a sudden, Islamic terrorism replaces the threat of Russia. Do you remember when we were talking about communism and, you know, we got to uh, fight against uh, the encroaching communism and this and that? All of a sudden, uh, now Islam is the threat to the entire world, Um And a lot of justification um, to the things that we did over in their country uh, was couched in in verbiage, like we're fighting for freedom. And I always resented that statement. We're not fighting for freedom, we're fighting for security. There's a a difference. Um, We don't want any more terrorist attacks, okay? But the, the language that is often used is uh, we're fighting for freedom and, they're, and it's almost as if we got to get them before they get us. Um, they didn't have the ability to invade the United States, okay? There was no army coming from Islamic nations. But what it did teach us to do is beef up our intelligence and figure out, how they're working behind the scenes and possibly doing terrorist acts that could kill a lot of people, whether it's through chemicals that are introduced in the air or water or or a whole bunch of different things like that. Um, But what's interesting, though, is here's an effect that I think is quite interesting. Evangelicals were always pro-Israel, but after 9-11, They specifically became more anti-Muslim in their sentiments. And so all of a sudden, um, a Muslim family could no longer feel safe because of a possible attack against them because, hey, let's face it, all Muslims are terrorists, right? (laughs) It's kind of crazy, but that's kind of the mentality and you notice here the verbiage that is used by a couple of leaders that really up the rhetoric. Now, Bush was drawn into it because of 9-11. He used the word crusade a few different times, which was unfortunate. I think he should have used different language. But notice what Franklin Graham and Pat Robertson um, use in their rhetoric. Uh, Franklin Graham called Islam a very evil and wicked religion. Okay, now, every religion has extremists. Every religion has its nutcases. Every religion has the potential of hurting people. You have to be careful of classifying an entire group of people as if they're that way. Now, notice what Pat Robertson said. He said, Muslims, not terrorists muslims are worse than nazis okay when you use language like that it really ups the angst let's face it christians are pretty fearful people even though the the most frequent command in the bible is do not fear (laughs) but anyways so here's what happens two-thirds of evangelicals believe islam to be a religion of violence and that their whole goal was world domination okay extreme islamic terrorism yes but not islam as a whole all right um now notice what happens with this rhetoric the most popular publications that start to hit the shelf in christian bookstores all have foreign policy titles attached to them okay um and then there was this movement that began of people that were ex-muslim terrorists that were converted by christ and they made the circuit and uh they had rallies and and uh conferences and stuff like that and what was exposed later is that none of these people were really ex-Muslim terrorists they just presented themselves that way as a way to sell books and as a way to sell tickets in other words follow the money follow the money so uh, during this time you have a lot of pseudo authors speakers that are filling their pocket by stoking the fear in the hearts of American Christians so if you you won't see as many of those titles now, but boy, right after 9-11, everything was about the Middle East. Uh, there were those authors that wanted to tie it to the end times, that type of thing. Well, if you rewind just 25 years earlier, that was being done by uh, Hal Lindsey in the late great planet Earth with Russia being the uh, the big evil empire type thing, so... Yeah. A lot of racial hatred and prejudice. Yeah. Yeah. Bigotry profiling. Yeah. 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 That is interesting. I mean, you know, if, gosh, if you had dark hair and you wore a turban and you were going uh, to get on a plane more than likely during this era, you were pulled to the back, you know, Um, there was a lot of profiling. I don't know how you get around that, in light of the fact that, yeah, right, that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's putting all of them into the same grouping. That that is what's you know what's bad about this. Any thoughts there?
2: Yeah, I never really understood. The take on Muslims and Islam, because we all basically worship the same God. Ishmael, it was another son of Abraham. Right. So I, I could never match it in my mind when people would say things like this.
0: Well, there's probably a couple of different uh, threads to that. Um, People like Franklin Graham would say, no, we don't worship the same God, Um, even though uh, Muslims, the the name they use for God, Allah, um, you know, but it's a it's the idea of um, a, a creator God that revealed himself and actually in Muslim theology, they honor and respect Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jesus They will Mm -hmm. have Muhammad in there as another prophet from God. And so the Quran becomes a centerpiece of their religion, but it's not the only piece. I mean, it's built on a lot of Old Testament personalities and with Jesus as well. Um, But I think a lot of that gets pushed to the side, Shelley by by these individuals like Franklin Graham and other evangelicals like this that insist no we don't worship the same God and um, you know they're worshiping the devil type thing and all of this is stoking a lot of hate and a lot of fear um, and there are people that are getting rich off that so individuals that are now writing books with some type of Islamic reference or Middle Eastern title. These books are uh, selling, um, I mean, they're flying off the shelves during this period of time because people think, oh, there's some answers in this book. Well, here we are now all these years later. And yes, is, you know, is terrorism still a problem? Yes, it is. Uh, however, at the same time, you know, we have not had due to good intelligence and a better way of protecting certain aspects of our nation. We haven't had a major attack by Muslim terrorists. Now it's all white Christian nationalists that are shooting everybody up, Um, which, you know, all these major shootings and, and trying to justify keeping the second amendment the way it is, Uh, assault rifles and stuff. It's an interesting thing that's happening in our world, that's for sure. But so to get back to your original thought there, Shelly, I think uh, a lot of these extreme evangelicals, uh, instead of trying to build a bridge of understanding between the religions, um, they just condemn it. And, um, you know, they continue to stoke fear. Uh, in people, you know what, there was an interesting gathering, this is about, this is pre-COVID, the Lutheran Church on, um, out in um, past Mentor on the Lake, uh, when you're going out Lakeshore, and you don't follow Lakeshore around the curve on Andrews, but if you keep going straight on Munson uh, Road there, there's a Lutheran Church a couple years ago, that had a a gathering of muslim and christians and um and i went and they broke off into different uh, classrooms and the muslim women were explaining that their tradition of wearing head coverings and different things like that they these people were wonderfully nice and you know it was a, a neat way of helping to understand each other's religion and some of the traditions and stuff that uh have been developed over the years you know we should we need more of that obviously um to be able to understand uh, each other better some other thoughts Shelly no (laughs) all right okay let's move on okay now this is interesting so Uh, Barack Obama comes president, he serves for eight years as our 44th president, but he's the first African American, uh, or at least biracial uh, president. Um, What's interesting is his name, Barack Hussein Obama, okay? And the middle name, Hussein, made evangelicals crazy. Uh, They were suspicious that he was a Christian, even though uh, he could speak very eloquently about his faith in Christ, uh, but it didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. So he was born in 1961, uh, August 4th, and obviously he's still living. Um, Evangelicals um, really went for the jugular um because of his his pastor uh jeremiah wright and i'll mention him in a second but let's look at a couple of points on this slide Uh, although white evangelicals and black protestants share a, a similar theological viewpoint the black tradition often called for justice okay and white evangelicalism tended to stay away from that um so jeremiah wright Obama's pastor, and I'll show you his picture, Jeremiah Wright, born 1941, uh, still living. Uh, he, he spoke uh, about injustice all the way from Native Americans to some of the terrorism uh, by Israel against Palestinians. Um, he was an individual that insisted that war, the military, colonialization, an occupation. um, None of these things are really a way to peace. That was his main point. Uh, And he made a statement that really brought the house down on Obama. He said, he made a statement that said, God damn America. Uh, And that stood out in the news. And what he was talking about is this here, uh, that a lot of the approaches that were being taken and touted as the way of peace were not actually the way of Jesus at all. That was his point. But then Obama had to double back, okay? And so the way he, he kind of squashed controversy is he gave a very powerful speech uh, professing his faith in the decency and generosity of the American people uh, as a whole. And that was in direct contrast to his pastor who said, God damn America. It was a very powerful speech, uh, but what he tied together was the constitution's unfinished work of pursuing uh, liberty and justice for all people, including blacks. And um, so that didn't seem to help him much in the evangelical world though. And his fiercest uh, uh, critic was Jim Dobson. Okay, so uh, Jim Dobson and Franklin Graham and Donald Trump, all of these individuals hated Barack Obama. And what's interesting is that Franklin Graham introduced the question of the legitimacy of Obama's birth certificate and then Donald Trump jumped on that if you remember uh as well and then other evangelicals insisted because of his middle name Hussein that he was muslim well he had said over and over and over again that he was a christian but that was ignored and what happened and all of that was a coalition of critics pushing back on barack obama's presidency and um Again, it's all fueled by partial truths and fear and all that type of thing. Hi, how you doing? Good. Oh, okay, no problem, no problem at all. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Franklin Graham uh, in all of this. Um, it makes a lot more sense now that I understand more about his father's involvement in politics, why he is so involved in it. it um, you know, his um, his organization uh, that, um, uh, is it uh, Americans Purse or is it, yes, yeah, Americans Purse, um, does a lot of good work around the world. It really does. But at the same time, a lot of the things that, Was happening in his organization Uh, wasn't left in ministry circles alone. He began to move more into politics and and became more and more aggressive against the LGBTQ community and so forth. Thank you. And uh, so with that, uh, what we find is that um, again his his backing of of some of the different political leaders. comes comes into to play here as well, so I guess a new era has emerged um, that has led us to the evangelical infatuation with Donald Trump. All of this didn't happen overnight; it's been a buildup over a number of years, and um, and after Obama's presidency, it's as if the evangelicals were kind of looking for a new high priest to carry that nationalistic agenda. And, uh, and Donald Trump fit the picture because he comes across as a mean, uh, masculine, uh, takes no crap type of thing. What's that?
2: I, I never thought of him as really masculine.
0: <laughs> well, no, he comes across like that in the way he says, mm-hmm. yeah, he's a, yeah, Esty he says he's a ruthless businessman. He's also an individual that, um, I, you know, I don't know why people do business with him, to tell you the truth, the way he manipulates things. Mm-hmm. But the way, what I'm talking about here is when there would be a protest uh, rise up in one of his rallies you know, those type of things, you know, he talked about punching people, and beating them up, and, and all of that is feeding into this strong masculinity, we take no crap type thing, Um, you know, I, I don't know what happened to the teachings of Jesus of going the extra mile, or turning the other cheek, but that's where evangelicalism ended up, was this infatuation, and it didn't start off instantaneously. Um, it became apparent that he just had a way of steamrolling over the Marco Rubio's and other candidates that were running for the, on the re- Republican ticket at that time. <clears throat> but he did what, um, what a lot of uh, the uh, white nationalists, christianity does and that is stoke fear um and and he used that to his advantage now that's a technique that had been used for the last 50 years but um it's a recipe that was used over and over again it the the people that were the threat though changed you'll see here it was communism then humanism then feminism then terrorism uh Thrown into that is the homosexual agenda, uh, the erosion of our religious freedoms, different things like that um, were all ways of manipulating a crowd. And uh, Trump knew how to push the nerve buttons of people. And uh, he was good at that. And then his idea was make America great again. The way forward is to go back. Uh, So, you know, if we can get back to the days of the 50s, the 40s, then America will be great again. And there's kind of a hypnosis to that, that, oh, yeah, the 50s were great. Happy days, you know, that type of thing. Um, No country can go back. All we all we can do is make a better tomorrow as we move forward. Uh, But it's almost as if this John Wayne image uh, that um, has been used throughout this book uh, is now kind of, again, with this front man that, oh, if we could just get this icon back, uh, our country will be saved and so forth. So um, that's kind of what I wanted to share in this last history lesson. But I do want to say this, that there's a couple things. I don't think I had room on your handout for this uh, slide. But uh, the election of Donald Trump promoted many to uh, kind of turn away from evangelicalism. Um, The word has been used to deconstruct their faith. Um, Maybe a better way than deconstruction is uh, reshape their faith. That might be a a better term to use, but um, what we find is that there is still kind of a a tribalism going on within Christianity, a hatred uh, toward other people, the very people that Jesus told us to love, and even though, uh, as I say here, deconstruction is kind of a buzzword, um, it seems, at least right now, to be how people are looking at their faith. And as they are uh, viewing what has happened over the last 50 years, especially, they're beginning to use language, this isn't the type of faith that I want to follow. And so deconstruction, if you do want to use that term, has to be followed up with a second term, and that is reconstruction. And that is, if you're going to deconstruct the bad things about Christianity as it stands right now, How do we reconstruct our faith that looks more like the Savior that we say we love and serve? So um, that's, I think, where we're at right now. And, um, you know, I think it's going to be hard to get young people back into church. I really do. I, I think it's going to be something that will take time only if they begin to see some good fruit that starts to come out of it. Thoughts? That's what I have for you tonight. Any questions, comments uh, that you want to wrap up with?
2: One thing that I think Trump might have touched on somehow in the evangelical community, at least in the Orange County, Southern California evangelical community, is my sister voted for him because she was, and her husband too, they were convinced that he was going to help usher in Armageddon.
0: Uh-huh. Mm. And so I they don't... wanted the violence because that was the way the world was going to end and Christ would establish his kingdom, right? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? So rather than working for peace, you're actually working for a final battle a final world war because that's the only way christ can usher in his kingdom
2: and i think if um biden wouldn't have won this election mm-hmm. trump would have sided with putin in the ukraine and we would be well on our way
0: yeah that might be uh, there were some conversations between Trump and Putin behind doors that they didn't allow anybody else in the room and who knows what they talked about. I mean, that's conspiracy. I don't like conspiracy. But at the same time, it's interesting that no reporters or other political figures were allowed in some of the meetings that he had. But mm -hmm. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, Mark said they were friends. And Yeah. He looked up to his uh, his leadership style. That's for sure. Again, a leader that doesn't take any any crap, right? Yeah. And squashes yeah. uh, any resistance or um, you know uh, that type of thing. So, okay. So here's where we're going to go the rest of the month. So I want to wrap this study up by the end of August, but I want to talk about all of this history that we've done this past month, how it has affected um, our world. And that is, um, has it affected um, economically, uh, ecologically and uh, that type of thing. But I want it to be hopefully uh, more biblical centered. And I understand this has been more of a, a teaching of facts and persons and uh dates type thing but it's all kind of a background that leads to well how does the bible see um the world we live in uh how are we to treat the earth according to the scripture um how are we to treat each other in in terms of the economic needs of each other that type of thing so i'm going to i'm going to use some scripture to kind of say, okay, these are the issues that we're working with in the postmodern world. Um, Is there anything that the scriptures can speak into the situations that we have? And then that'll be the end of this study by the end of August. In September, here's what I'd like to do. Um, I wanna do a book study through Exodus. And there's a reason for that. In Exodus, a lot of the themes that we've been talking about this summer are also found all the way back in the empire of Egypt. And how God brings uh, the nation of Israel out of their circumstances to the promised land is quite interesting. So uh, come September, uh, we're gonna do a study in Exodus and kind of figure out um, how these two things kind of parallel a little bit and, and what is Exodus as a book trying to accomplish? Okay, so. All right. That's it for tonight. That's what I have. And thanks for your input and involvement tonight. And uh, we will uh, close it up at this point.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Larry.
0: Welcome. Okay. Bye. Have a time with your grandkid uh, there and, and her friends. Okay.
2: <laughs> okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye.